Well, good morning, Covenant. Good to, let's try that one more time. Good morning, Covenant. Much better. Yeah. Great to see all of you. I knew there was more of you in here than that. Great to see all of you. My name is Joel. If you're watching us from home, one of the pastors here. We are in Psalm 23 for the second week now in the middle of a series called At Peace, learning how to live with a tranquil, settled heart in the middle of a world that sometimes seems like it is coming apart at the seams. And one of the great encouragements that we learn from this particular psalm, perhaps the most famous poem in all of the world, certainly the most famous poem in Scripture, is that that settledness, that, that tranquil kind of state of being can be ours independent of what's going on around us, which is another way of saying the world doesn't have to get fixed for you to live at peace. That should encourage you. And we started last week by understanding that this peace is a satisfied peace. It leads us not just to say with our lips, but also to just embody with our lives and this peaceful way in which we relate to our neighbors. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And today we're going to learn that the peace that satisfies is also the peace that brings us refreshment. It recharges us. Anybody tired in here? Anybody, anybody watch me from home and you're tired? Anybody feel like they're burning the candle at both ends? Anybody wonder if there's any end in sight? Anybody in here who wonders if you have any margin at all left in your schedule? Sometimes it just seems like life continues to speed up. I was talking with my wife about this just a, a little while ago. It just seems like life could not move any faster, but then it also seems like over the, about the last decade of my life, from being in my late 30s, so being a 39-year-old 10 years ago going, wow, life seems to have really sped up since I was a kid, to now I'm staring down the barrel of my 50th birthday that is within the next 90 days, and I'm like, it doubled. Like the rate of speed doubled. And then those of you who are in your 60s or your 70s or your 80s laugh at me and go, Pastor, it's only going to get worse. So you're a great encouragement, right? I mean, it's just one of those things. And it, it, but it's true, right? We know it because at least perceptively it just seems true. I've got an oldest son now who it seems like about three weeks ago we brought him home from the hospital. He's going to graduate from college next May. How did that happen? I look at these people in my house that got bigger, and they eat everything. And I wonder, how did this happen? It just moves at just this great rate of speed. And then when you take that factor, that dynamic, which was true before a global pandemic, and then you throw everything that our society's been made to endure into the mix of that so that now it's not just that, that life seems to be speeding up, it is we keep trying to cram more and more into that sped up life, and eventually what happens, you, it, like, you feel like you're living in a vice. You have no margins. You feel like, well, I, I really need about 25 hours instead of 24 to get this done, and you know because you have a brain that you're never going to get that extra hour. And so it just seems like, it, it just seems hopeless. Like, am I ever going to find a way out of this? And when you live that way, it will create an unhealthy amount of stress in your life. Anybody ever wonder where COVID weight came from? All right. Some of it was they locked everything down. And so we didn't go anywhere for a while. We did all of our meetings online and we ordered in and we learned all about Amazon Prime. 
My wife calls it the fun wagon, that big blue wagon that comes and drops stuff off on our front deck. But then all of a sudden, the, the lockdowns ended and they let us back out into the world and, and the physical activity increased, but somehow we, we couldn't still, so many of us couldn't get our weight under control. Well, stress is a huge factor in that. That's something that predates the pandemic. I found this online several years ago, actually, predating the pandemic. It's called the stress diet. Okay, you ready for this? This is what you'll have for breakfast. One half of a grapefruit. You can go ahead and say, ooh, I did. One, I could put sugar on it, but then that sort of counteracts the whole idea of having a grapefruit, doesn't it? One half of a grapefruit. One piece of whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skim milk. Yeah, I felt pretty much the same way. It does get better. Lunch, you can have four ounces of lean broiled chicken, but it doesn't get better immediately. One cup of steamed zucchini, because sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. One Oreo cookie. There we go. All right, now we're talking our language, right? And, and a pitcher, and some herbal tea. All right, so breakfast, lunch, and after you've done that and your life is in a vice, Dinner involves the following. You ready? The rest of the package of Oreo cookies. One quart of Rocky Road ice cream, one jar of hot fudge, two loaves of garlic bread, one large pizza, a pitcher of beer, three Milky Way candy bars, and an entire frozen cheesecake because the grapefruit canceled all that other stuff out. This is what we do. Somewhere in the middle of the day in the hustle and the bustle and trying to cram more stuff into a life that increasingly seems to have an increasing pace. And by the end of the day, your discipline is gone and you just want to gorge your sorrows. That's what stress will do to you. There are other things that stress will do to you as well. It will rob you of rest. It'll take away your peace of mind. It'll steal the joy out of your life. And then it'll produce this vicious cycle of fatigue until you finally come to the point that you start asking, is there any way out? Is there a solution to the pressure? And as we have seen over the last year in what the corporate world now calls the great resignation, some people have just given up, quit their jobs, and walked away. I'm done. I'm done. And it's because teachers aren't appreciated or it's because... Some other, like firefighters, aren't appreciated or police officers aren't appreciated. I think it probably has less to do with that and more to do with the fact that we're living in a vice and we don't know how to cope with it. And we don't recognize, too many of us, that there's a promise in this poem that tells us there is a way to live in tranquility without any of that other stuff changing. So you either, on the one hand, participate in the great resignation, or on the other hand, You spiritualize it. You make yourself seem like super spiritual by some crazy comment like this. I might burn out, but I'd rather burn out than rust out. Have you ever heard anybody say that? It sounds spiritual, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm just going to, I'm going to flame out for the Lord. It's actually not spiritual at all because the Lord doesn't want you to rust out, but he also doesn't want you burning out. He doesn't want either of those from you. He wants you to last. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to persevere. And one of the things we're going to find in verses 2 and 3 is David's own process for finding refreshment because a key ingredient in lasting and being faithful is to find a peace and live in a peace that refreshes you, that recharges you. And so I just want you to see this process for finding refreshment despite 
everything that's going on in your world right now, whatever that might consist of. Respite, relief from stress, relief from worry, and it starts by simply resting in the shepherd's presence. In verse 2, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, one of the things I learned about sheep just studying up for this message is that they, as a general rule, they don't like to lie down. They like to stand up. And they don't typically lie down on their own. They either have to have a good, firm shepherd who loves them enough to make them go there, or the shepherd has to bring them to a certain level of satisfaction so that they will lie down. So you fill their bellies, they feel safe, they're, they're in the shade because they're pretty finicky animals. And in other words, if they're going to rest, the shepherd has to make them rest. He has to make them to lie down. So this is a very fitting, very accurate agricultural analogy. And in that way, sheep are a lot like children. I don't know about you guys, but in our home, all three of our kids, there were things that they used to beg us for all the time. But I do not remember a single time in my life as a father where when they were little bitty kids, I mean, from the time they were fighting it when they were infants all the way up until they started school, never once did any of them come to me and go, Mommy, Daddy, please let me take a nap. That never happened. It was always the opposite. We always had to make them go. If you've got an infant right now, and we are incredibly blessed at Covenant to just have a passel of infant babies all over this joint, and I'm so thankful for that. It's, it, it gets a sign of life for a church. But some of you, especially if it's your first one, and you're wondering, why do they get, why, why is it at bedtime that they just become evil? They're fighting their rest. They're fighting their sleep. They don't want to miss anything. And so there's, ah, right before there's, right? And if you've been a parent, you know this. You know why that's the case? This may sting a little bit, so just get ready. That is all part of our life experience because a refusal to rest is a sign of being immature. A refusal to take that Sabbath, a refusal to actually be at rest and at peace. If you want a life that's characterized by a refreshing peace, you've got to grow out of that, which means you have to learn to rest. And in case you don't think you can, or in case you think the world is somehow going to fall apart if you don't, I would just remind you that seven times in the Gospels, Jesus himself both comes apart from the crowds for a time of rest, and he leads his disciples to do the same. And every bit of this is anchored deeply in this concept that we read about very, very early, all the way, just the, from the earliest chapters of Genesis all the way up until the time of the Gospel. It's this concept called the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, the religious leaders are uptight because Jesus' disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath day. See, that's not how Sabbath started. Sabbath started as a means of helping us to understand that even prior to the fall, our physical bodies were built by God with limitations. We weren't supermen, superwomen prior to the fall. We were still limited by our infinite creator. And so he built both in that seventh days, those seven days of creation, a manner of a, a pattern that he first emulated by resting himself, though as God he did not need it, and building that into our own lives so that there's a cycle, there's a rhythm of life that says one seventh of your week needs to look very different from the other six. It just does. Because God didn't build you to do the same thing all the time and never stop. And over time, 
the, the concept of Sabbath became very legalistic. It became very oppressive. And so when we get to Mark chapter 2, Jesus is there with his disciples and they're picking grain, not because they're, they don't care about God's rules. They're picking grain because they're hungry. And when the, when the religious leaders begin to complain about this, Jesus reminds them of something that you and I need to be reminded of as we look at the 23rd Psalm. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created that day after the pattern of creation so that you and I would have healthy rhythm in our life that would include rest. And the reason he did that is because he did not create your physical body or mine to handle a seven-day work week, a 24-hour news cycle, constant input and output with absolutely no rest. This is the reason we stress out. It's the reason for heart attacks and strokes and every other kind of interpersonal conflict is that we live as though that's not true. We live as though somehow we can skirt that rule and be okay, which is another way of saying we live as though it's okay to sin in that way. You know, it's interesting. 30 years almost I've been pastoring and I don't remember a single time that anybody ever bragged about having adultery in the church. People do it outside, I know, but, but inside the church. I don't remember anybody bragging about having a substance abuse problem. Uh, if I did that right now, if I said, all right, up to the men in the church, how many of you have ever cheated on your wife? I doubt even if it's true that any hands would go up. I certainly know nobody's going to stand up and thump their chest. I did it, pastor. Cheated on her twice last week. And then have some guy get up and go, well, I cheated on my wife three times last week. So why do we think it's okay to act the same way about violating God's standard for not getting the rest and refreshment we need. Because we do an awful lot of chest thumping in that region, don't we? In that particular area. I worked 80 hours last week. Oh, man, you don't know nothing. I worked 90 hours. I worked 90 hours every single week. I actually had a guy get upset with me at one point. I was very early here. And so you're still kind of learning who everybody is. I've been here maybe six months. And he got upset about something. I don't remember what it was. And he demanded that I call a meeting on Good Friday with four members of our staff. And I'm like, well, you know, let me just remind you, it's Passion Week. I've got staff working on other things, and I'm not inclined to call an emergency meeting over this. You know what his answer was? I work 100-hour weeks, and I make time for it. And I said, brother, I can't help it if you sin. We're not going to do that, you know? Lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. You ever heard that before? That we're not going to, I'm not going to encourage, of course, at that point as a church, this was a seven day a week, 365 day. Like I came in here on Thanksgiving day one time and people were here. And I'm like, this building, these people, we, we have bought into this lie that to be faithful to Jesus, you just got to be, it's just got to be nonstop action all the time. And I was actually trying to break that. I certainly wasn't going to allow something like that to lead to more of it because it's a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of immaturity. And so why do we brag about it? It's because we think, I think we live at least in such a way that we don't think it's true. And so what do you do? You live like Adam lived when he chose to disobey God in the garden thinking himself capable of being like God, knowing everything, handling everything. 
That's what you do. And the result is you never, ever stop. You never, ever disconnect. So you stay constantly connected through a phone. You consume ungodly amounts of coffee and Red Bull. You go home stressed out. Inside, you're just as jittery as the world around you would have you experience. You can't get sleep, so you binge Hulu or Netflix, and that doesn't help, so you go surf the web. You forget that that blue light from that screen is not good for you either, but you just can't really seem to get rested from all the chaos. And God only knows what kind of disinformation you find there, which jacks you up even more. The result are 300 plus million people in a nation now that is full of over-caffeinated, phone-answering, text-messaging, grumpy, Sabbath-violating wrecks who are enslaved to our own chaos. And so I hope that you're not offended. I hope you're encouraged when you contrast that reality against what we see here. He makes me lie down. Because you and I both need a shepherd to make us lie down. I'm one of those kind of guys. This, this is one of those messages that in preparing it, I got beat up pretty bad. So just know, as the old preacher used to say, if I'm pointing one finger at you, three more and the thumb are pointed back at me because this got me first. I'll share a few more personal stories with you as we move forward together. But you just need to know, I'm, I struggle with this with you. I need a shepherd to make me lie down because if you never feel refreshed, it's likely due to the fact that you never rest. And for the most part, it's not because of a problem that you really need to solve or a circumstance that has affected you through no fault of your own or a season of life, right? Some of you are in a season of life right now where things are really busy. That, that happens, all right? I understand that. I, I had a season in my life where I worked two part-time jobs and uh, two part-time jobs taught adjunctively at a, at a college, planted a church, and was working on a PhD. Okay, that, that was an insane time period in my life. But I had an exit strategy, all right? Once you get past that point, you don't just keep trying to pack stuff in to, the, to your margins until there are no more margins. You move forward. And, and for the most part, it's not because of something like that. It's because you feel more needed than you are. I've heard people say that. Well, I can't quit. Oh, I can't take a day off. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I can't rest. Oh, that's not possible for me. You don't understand. People need me. They really don't. Okay? I, I mean, I, I don't want to pop your balloon, but dadgummit, some of y'all need your balloon freaking popped before you die. Okay? I'm needed. You, you are not God. And you are consequently not that important. And there is great freedom in understanding that. And I, I don't, you are not that bad. And so for the most part, this is a sin in our lives from which we need to repent. And the encouragement that comes from this phrase, he makes me lie down, is that we not view repentance here as a threat. We view it as an invitation. Come lie down. I'm offering you rest in my presence. And if you're going to rest in his presence, 
You're going to have to rely on his provision. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So literally, pastures of tender grass, pastures of new vegetation. Uh, There's a specific agricultural reference here uh, that, that points us to the fact that the sheep don't eat fruit, cabbage, they don't eat meat, they eat grass. And they have to eat particular kinds of grass if they're going to be healthy. And and so we know that spiritually our shepherd also has food for us that is good for us. The green grass that our Lord provides to us, we see it multiple places throughout the text. But but most notably in Jeremiah 15, 16, the prophet says, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The Word of God is my spiritual provision and yours. It is our stress relief provision. Now, the problem that the shepherds had in in Palestine was that not all grass was good grass, and so the shepherd had to differentiate between the tender grass, the green pastures that David's describing here, and what was called goat grass. And the thing is, it looked kind of the same, and if you're a sheep with the level of vision that a sheep has, it looks exactly the same. It might even taste the same, but it's not good for your digestive system if you're a sheep. It can make you very sick and very weak. In some cases, it would even be fatal if you ate too much of it. And so the sheep didn't care. They just ate whatever was there. Again, kind of like some of our children or maybe even like some of us, right? Not everything you eat is good for you. It might taste good. It might bring you temporary pleasure and it might simultaneously be contributing to your weight gain or your blood pressure or your cholesterol issues. What you eat has to be good for you and and spiritually that's true as well. We have to submit to God to guide us in what is good for us. Sort of the same way we do with our children when they're small. We have to be very careful about what they eat. It doesn't mean they can't have a piece of cake or a scoop of ice cream or some candy at the store. I'm always the one that my wife calls the sucker. Because when I take my kids to the grocery store and we get in the aisle, we're we're ready to check out. And they they pick out Twix bars or Snickers bars or M&Ms or whatever. And I'm like, sure. Because I like being liked by my children. And I get home and Mrs. Rainey gives me the eye roll. And she go, either you're such a sucker or it's, they just had a bunch of that this morning, but I'm not watching, right? So on occasion, you, you got to watch that, don't you? You have to make sure they eat. And, and you know, as well as I do, when, from the time they're able to actually pick stuff up, where does it go? Right there. I mean, it's amazing. So again, if this is if, if if you're one of those parents watching from home, you're in here somewhere, or, and you, and you're you're cuddling that first little one, and this hasn't happened yet, let, let me give you some peace of mind. There will be no need to call the ER. Okay, crayons they come out exactly the same colors they go in. You're welcome. Right? It, it, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. They're resilient little suckers. They really are. But you also don't just sit there and watch them eat a whole box of crayons either, do you? You got you to pull this away. The Word of God is the tender grass that He gives us. I, I'm not telling you it's the only thing you should ingest. God, through common grace, has given us a lot of stuff. I mentioned this last week that, that I, I, mental health professionals are a gift from the Lord at our time. There's absolutely nothing about sitting down with a qualified therapist that contradicts in any way your faith. In fact, we thank God to have brothers and sisters in that profession right here who who counsel and give us guidance 
I'm very thankful for them. But sometimes in the field of psychology, you can run across some goat grass, can't you? Some stuff that's not good for you. Sometimes your media intake, <clears throat> you run across some goat grass. Social media, there are loads of goat grass. News media, there's a lot of goat grass. And, and there's a lot of things that I don't have a really neat buttoned up answer for you on. Like if I go to this channel or if I go to this site or if I go, is it reliable? You know, the Lord called us to be discerning about these things, but I can promise you this, this book right here, you'll never have goat grass. Never. Everything you have here is the greener grass that, that the shepherd is talking about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The word of God is our tender grass. Now, how many of you would say, if you were honest, God's already blessed you with more than you deserve. Yeah, you better get them hands up. We've got to talk about the gospel, right? The gospel is God gave me something that I don't deserve. Relief from stress requires that we get rest. And God has provided that for us. We may not deserve it, but he's provided it for us. It also requires that you rely on his provision. So I'm going to lie down and rest in his presence. I'm going to trust that he truly is sovereign over all things. I'm going to trust that he is going to provide me with what I need, that, that I, don't, I don't have to be aware of everything. I don't have to go try to fix everything. I don't have to have everything figured out. That will put me in a place to be refreshed with the shepherd's peace. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Literally, he leads me beside the waters of quietness. Quiet waters. So I'm living in a world in constant motion, constant input, constant noise, pulling me into an existence in which that world would love to see everything on the inside of me just as unstable as is everything on the outside of me. Always on, always in motion, always in action, whether it's the dinner meeting or the kids' soccer practice or work meetings or some side business, side hustle I got to go on, everything else I've filled my calendar with. And I think the answer is, well, I just need some extra time. You don't get any extra time. Before electricity, before the industrial revolution, before the computer age, back in the founding days of this nation when pretty much all we had was rutted streets and horses and some corn, right? I mean, when they had nothing. Thing. You know what they did have that was equal to what we have? Time. The same 168 hours a week. There's nothing we've been able to do technologically or otherwise, and never will be, that will give us one second more than they had. So why do we think the answer is we got to cram more stuff in there? I'm part Cherokee Indian, and there's a, there's a, a Native American maxim that comes out of the tribe that I descend from that is just hilarious and also true. It goes like this. Only a white man would cut two feet from the top of a rope, add it to the bottom of the rope, and think he's got a longer rope. It's right, isn't it? That's what we try to do with our schedules, right? I, I need 25 hours. I mean, I'm going to shove this in here. I'm going to shove this in there. Jesus wants to lead you to a better place than that place of quiet refreshment. And the result is this, he restores my 
soul. This is where energy comes from. This is where restoration comes from. He delivers my life by withdrawing me. He provides the relief I need from the daily grind by his mere presence. And it's his reminder that I can't fix it all and I can't know it all. I have to lean into him. I have to trust him. And that'll give me the strength that I lost when the car broke down or when I argued with my spouse the night before or when life tries to load my arms up with things that I wonder if I can even carry. When my passion for life gets threatened, my joy and everything I am and all that I do, see, all of that gets restored when the shepherd takes me to a quiet place. And this would have been very paradoxical to read around the time it was written. Because if you've ever seen pictures of Israel or if you've ever been there, you know it's not the most attractive place in the world. It, it's basically a pile of dirt. I mean, there are a few isolated places with beautiful vistas. The Jordan Valley would certainly be one of those. But by and large, this is rocky, dry, barren soil. There's virtually, in addition, no rain between March and October. And that can be a problem for sheep because their bodies are 70% water. And if they don't get something to drink, it's going to go very badly for them. And if they're not watched, they will just go to whatever water they come to. If it's a mud hole, if it's some kind of sewage refuse, they will drink it if it's wet. And if they're not carefully watched, they'll develop parasites and other diseases that can be fatal, which is another way to say that without the guidance of a shepherd, they will eventually kill themselves. And did you know there's a parallel to that, to our own spiritual lives? In Matthew 9, Jesus looks out over a crowd of people. They're all dealing with various kinds of problems. And he's been incarnating himself among those problems, sickness that he reached out and healed, poverty, death. Jesus grieved. You know, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but not before he joined the rest of us in grieving. Not that, that's how close he wants to be to you. And not just grieving the death, but grieving a world that is broken and has collapsed in on itself because of the sin curse, because there wouldn't be tears if there weren't death, and there wouldn't be death if there were not sin. And so he grieves that before he solves it. This is what he does. And in Matthew 9, he's doing it again. He looks out over this crowd of people who are all dealing again with these various kinds of problems. And it says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, if you're here this morning or you're watching moment and you've never made a commitment to Jesus, you're not a follower you may have grown up in the church, but you've never actually turned from your sins and put your faith in him. This is how he looks at you. Even if you belong to him, for that matter, this is how he looks at you. He does not first see what culture sees, an engineer, a mechanic, a teacher, an electrician, a soldier, a computer programmer, a federal agent, whatever you do. He doesn't judge you first and foremost by the level of productivity that you contribute to society. What he sees is either, on the one hand, a sheep with no shepherd, or on the other hand, if you know him but are not getting what he promises here, he sees a sheep who is away from his shepherd. He sees you drinking polluted water and eating poisonous grass and running all over the place looking for satisfaction, sometimes in things that aren't even inherently bad. They're rather innocuous, actually, but they're never going to bring what only he can bring. And so you, you look to that ultimate fulfillment, that refreshment in a vacation. And then you go to Disney and you wonder why you didn't get any rest. 
Really? You look for that, that fulfillment and that refreshment in your family. And then you have a kid that goes buck wild or a wife that you go through a rough patch and season in the marriage and you can't seem to get along with each other. And then you wonder, where does that go? Or maybe it is something more illicit like drugs or, or illicit sex or you're going looking for fame or you're, you're getting greedy and you're looking for possessions. You're looking everywhere except in the place that you will actually find it. And if that's you, your story is a lot like that of a man named Augustine. African bishop who lived during the fifth century and the early part of his life was as godless and pagan as it gets. And he writes in the fifth century his famed book, Confessions. It is, in my estimation, the greatest coming of age story in the post Nicene era of the church. Because it's there that with all of that godless background in view, he confesses the following You, speaking of God, have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you because he's the only person that can bring your soul back he will restore your soul lay down at his feet let him refresh you today so let me give you some practical steps that you can take some of which your own pastor does not practice nearly as well as he preaches but these are necessary. This will, this will create an environment of refreshment for you. All right, here's the first one. Plan your Sabbath. In fact, let me put it this way. Plan and guard your Sabbath. So what is a Sabbath? You know, we, it, it's not today. Okay, this is the first day of the week. This is Sunday. This is the Lord's day. It's important for God's people to gather and worship. Sabbath is something entirely different. Sabbath is, if you go back prior to the temple, Prior to the sacrificial system, Sabbath predates all of that. It is that one-seventh of your week that should look very different and should provide for you a means of refreshment. So you got to put it on the calendar. I'm sure I've got people here who are planners, right? Some of you are freakish planners. Like you're, you're the guy that shows up at the airport ready to go on vacation with a binder of activities. And I'm the guy that says... Is there a part in there where I burn that binder? Because <laughs> I'm going on vacation, right? But you plan everything. But you don't plan your Sabbath. And if you don't plan it, you're going to waste it. Either you'll never have it, and you'll just make it just like any other day, and eventually you're just going to burn out because God didn't create you to handle all that. Or you're going to get there, and you're going to be a bad steward of it. This is not a day to waste. It is a day to invest. So identify it, plan it, guard it. With very rare exception for my wife and I, that's Friday evening into Saturday. That's our, that's our Sabbath. And so there are rare exceptions, like first day of every sports season, you'll see me out here. On occasion, I may come out and say hello to some folks. But you're like, well, that, man, that's a big day. It is. And you know what? It can go on without me. It really, it really can, because God didn't make me for seven-day-a-week ministry. He didn't make you for that either. And so this is what we do. And for some of you, that stuff that goes on went on yesterday, that is your Sabbath, because you take great joy in doing that and serving that. And I thank God for you, and I thank God that you find that rest and refreshment from what you're doing in your normal jobs to do that sort of thing. You're like, but, but, but we need our pastor. Yeah, you need Jesus. 
You need Jesus. And, and your pastor, when you do need him, needs to be needable. Adrian Rogers, perhaps the, the most famous Baptist preacher of the modern age, used to say the pastor who is always available is not worth anything when he's available. So you've got to build this in. Build it in. Number two, intentionally stop during the week. So don't just let this be a day where you, because otherwise you're going to run 100 miles an hour and then you're going to get to your Sabbath and you're going to have to slam on the brakes. There need to be, even during days of work, there needs to be ebb and flow of activity and you need to start slowing down as you prepare for that. I flew home from a, some meetings that I had in Michigan this past week and I landed at Dulles at 545 and my wife had made 730 reservations for us somewhere. So I that, that time in the plane, internally, I get myself, I didn't do any work. I like working on the plane. And, and I just, but I had to, okay, I can't, I can't have my mind running 1,000 miles an hour when I pick her up, right? So mentally and otherwise, I got I to gotta get in a different place. What's that going to take? You need to know that in advance. You need to take those breaks, okay? Susanna Wesley was the mother of two men named Charles and John, Charles is one of the most famed hymn writers of the 19th century. John was the founder of the Methodist Church. So I think this woman probably knew a little of what she was doing, right? She's the mother of these. Now, how many ladies, you, you have small children now, or you did have small children, and, and your biggest frustration is you can't get any time alone. They just keep bothering you. Can I see your hands? It's okay to feel that way, all right? Like you, you, and here's what, here's what my wife used to say. I can't even go to the bathroom, right? They keep knocking. They need something. How many of you went to the bathroom and you stayed in there? Some of y'all just lying. You're like, I'm afraid I'm going to see like a bad mom. If I, oh, get that hand up. Just be honest before the Lord. Because I'm going to tell you something about Susanna Wesley. She didn't even have a bathroom. But you know what she did? She sat in the middle of the kitchen on a chair. She had an apron, and she threw it over her head. And her children learned, Mama and Jesus are up under that apron. And she's having her time with the Lord, and we don't bother her. Like, bones sticking out, blood, but there's got to be a certain amount of it. Then we can bother Mom. And I know what some of you think, but my children need me. I, they really are resilient little suckers. Trust me. I've raised three of them. It, it, they can handle being without you. But you know what they really need? They need a mother who loves Jesus. They need a mother who, who, who will refresh herself like that, who will build that in, not only for her own good, but for the good of her children. They need to see that level of intimacy with the Father. Kennedy, President Kennedy, you know what he used to do? He used to take a five-minute vacation. Every day, he'd go into the Oval Office. I imagine there's still a lot of activity that goes on there, wouldn't you? And he would sit in a rocking chair that was designed. He had back issues. And his chief of staff was told, staff do not come in for a full five minutes. I'll start my day by sitting in that chair. I'm not going to think about anything. I'm just going to rest. Five-minute vacation. I'm venturing to guess there's not a soul in here. I know I would not be one of those people who has a schedule that's any busier than the President of the United States. 
they built in that time. You, you've got to intentionally stop during the week. Nothing you're doing is so important that you can't stop and find that time of refreshment. Now, here's the big one. You ready for number three? Turn off your phone. And all the air just went out of the room. You know, if you only go back 15 years, we didn't even have this problem. You, you were top of the line. You had the cream of the crop. You had the latest and the greatest if you had a flip phone. And now they're making smartphones that are flip. Have you seen them? Like the, it, it bends. It's weird. Why would you want to bend it in half like that? But they're making them. They're making them. Probably so you'll lose them. And then have to buy another phone. Phones, and my children, if they were in this room right now, would say, hey, man, Daddy, we wish you would apply a little bit more of that in our home. And they'd be right, because this is tough. But I'm going to tell you, that phone is the biggest Sabbath killer and the biggest refreshment stealer that you have in your house right now. I'd almost guarantee it. And so you got to figure out what to do with it. When am I going to turn it off and on? I'm not telling you you shouldn't respond to text messages at work. I mean, but you've got to work something out. You've got to work that out. And so every time we take a family vacation, we got everything packed up. We get, in the, we get the van packed. It's sitting there aimed toward the street. I get in the van. We always pray as a family, Lord, keep us safe. Thank you for this opportunity to be together for the next couple of weeks. And then I take this thing out and I hand it over. You know why? Because I can't do this on my own. I got to have some help because my personality is such that I want to keep up, but I'll keep on keeping up and my kids are going to see this, right? And that, that's not fair to them. You say, well, how do you, how do people get in touch with you? My wife also has a cell phone and does not have the discipline problems that her husband has. And so there are a select few people on this campus that if there is a four-alarm fire that the lead pastor needs to respond to in the middle of his vacation, they know how to get me. They get me through her. Otherwise, that's it. She hands it to me on occasion if we're going to be separated and we need to text each other to find out where the other one is so we can get back together. And then when we do, I give it right back to her. Now, that's our plan. Yours may look a little bit different. But my point is this, if your phone doesn't Sabbath, neither will you. It won't. We, we, we've had to work this into our staff. You've got to have time when you're just down, right? You're just not doing anything. And so we tell our staff, you, you, need, to, you need to take vacations. The two things we've done actually since Pastor Dave has been here that, are, that have been incredibly helpful to our staff culture, number one, we did a lot of cross-training. Because when I first got here, it just wasn't, again, it's not about any individuals. There weren't bad people here. It, it was just this culture that would, there, was just, there was just a lot of mediocrity built into the culture. And so, and I don't know about you, but it enrages me to call any kind of organization and be told, well, there's one person and only one person who does that and they're on vacation, so you're going to have to call back in two weeks. God's people and the Lord himself are worthy of far more than that kind of incompetence. So we cross-train. Somebody's going to get to you. Somebody's going to help you. But the other thing we do, and the reason we cross-train, is because when they get their PTO, their paid time off approved, and they take off, we don't, 
mess with them. We don't call them. And we expect that they will not check back in because they need to disconnect. You've got to plan this stuff. Right? And there's two kinds of people when it comes to Sabbath. They're the kind of people that when you talk about the Sabbath day, their eyes light up really good. And they're like, oh, I love talking about rest. And nine times out of ten, those are the kind of people that have forgotten their six other days. And you got to work. But then there's people who hate hearing about this because they think they're more needed than they really are. Okay? So intentionally stop, plan your Sabbath, turn off your phone. Here's the final thing I'm going to give you. You need to develop, because if you don't do what I'm about to say here, everything else just becomes legalism. Okay? You have to develop a Sabbath heart. You, you have to understand, the Lord gives this to me as a gift. I willingly open myself up to it. I willingly lay down at his feet. How must, how must our Heavenly Father feel when he looks at some of us? Some of you may have grown up in an abusive home or a home of neglect, and, and, and so the model, every time you hear the word Father, you're, you're triggered by that because, because of the, just the horrible example that you had set for you in your home and, and so maybe that's why you behave in some of the ways you do. But your heavenly father is not like that. And I think about my own kids. I want them to be productive, okay? I make jokes all of the time that the reason I don't take out the trash or change the cat's litter or empty the dishwasher is because I have children, right? I make that joke all the time. And I want them to be productive. I want division of labor. I, I want them to learn to play their role as part of the household. But the last thing this daddy wants is for them to see their identity wrapped up in their productivity. Their identity should be in the fact of whose they are and, and who I belong to, which is them. If my kids were running around constantly working and stressing and worried to death of, of, that I'm somehow going to disprove of them or disown them because of their lack of productivity, as a father, I would want to fix that. I want them productive. I don't want them constantly filled with angst. And God's heart is exactly like that. You need to know that today. He is a father whose heart is breaking for some of you because his yoke really is easy. And his burden really is light. And if you're perpetually carrying a burden and never able to let it go, it's not, it's not his. It was not given to you by him. David tells us here, there's a God who brings you relief. So my prayer for all of you is that you'll let his peace refresh your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear from your word and to hear not a threat, but an invitation, an invitation that I suspect those of us who live in the West desperately and repeatedly need to hear. And so, Lord, as we begin to consider how we're going to respond to your word, how will we be obedient from this point forward? I pray we can take some great joy in that. Father, that those who have their schedules wound up tight would, would find it worth the burden of untangling those knots so that they might lie down beside quiet waters and have their, stole, their souls restored. Lord, make that a reality for the people in front of me, and I pray that in Jesus' name.